Is this genocide that we're witnessing in Ukraine with Russia's invasion? You know, for me, the answer is clear, like, yes. In the case of Ukraine, there have, in fact, been multiple genocides. That's Jeff Benvenuto, a genocide expert and professor in the Holocaust and Genocide Studies program at Gratz College in Melrose Park, Pennsylvania. Thanks for spending a few moments with us here at CatholicPhilly.com. We are the digital media channel of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. I'm your host, Gina Christian. While Russian forces continue their full-scale invasion of Ukraine, an attack that actually dates back to 2014, when Russia annexed Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula and backed separatist regions in Ukraine's east. And in the wake of the most recent Russian assaults, which have relentlessly targeted civilians, mass graves, summary executions, and survivor accounts of torture, rape, and deportation have emerged, drawing global condemnation. Several international investigations have been launched to hold attackers to account, and one of the charges under consideration is genocide. Now, the term genocide, historically speaking, is a recent one, coined after the Second World War when more than six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. And while genocide gives a name to a very real crime, it can be difficult to prosecute under international law. At the same time, the risk factors for genocide are often overlooked and unaddressed, and no country, including the United States, is free from that risk. I asked Jeff to share with us his thoughts on genocide in general and as it applies to Ukraine. Let's take a listen. Jeff, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. My first question would be, how is genocide defined? Because we have kind of a popular usage of the term and then there's a specific application in international law. And while you're answering that, my second question would be, tell us a little bit about the history of the term. Sure, sure. The term is not very old. Uh, It was coined during World War II by a Polish Jewish lawyer named Raphael Lemkin, uh, who actually happened to spend time as a student. I believe he went to school and what is now the Ukrainian city of Lviv, um, or Lviv. Um, Lemkin coined the term during World War II, um, and it's how most academics understand the term of genocide, which, simply put, is intentional group destruction. Um, And this is Lemkin's original understanding, which was originally, it was very broad, very capacious, included a lot of things. It was a very, as he described it, a generic concept uh, meant to be widely applicable. For better or for worse, Lincoln's originally broad definition was soon overshadowed by his success. So the term is officially defined in international law according to Article 2 of the 1948 UN Genocide Convention, which defines it as the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group as such. So this is the official legal definition. And for all practical purposes, this is the dominant definition. Now, there are two things to note about this this dominant definition that's established by international law. So the first thing to note is the omission of political groups. So the, the, the UN Genocide Convention specifically delineates four specific group types. And it's notable that political groups were specifically, explicitly omitted due to the Soviet delegation during the drafting of the Genocide Convention. I mean, quite frankly, they were, you know, a great power, and they had the power of the pen, essentially. 
to write the law in such a way to avoid any self-exculpation, right? They weren't going to write a law that was so broad that would, you know, essentially put them at risk of being prosecuted for the crime of genocide. So that's the first thing to note, right? Um, the second thing to note about the Genocide Convention's definition is there's a very specific, a very narrow interpretation of the intent standard, right? So genocide is a crime of intent. Well, what is intent? What qualifies as intent? Well, there's a very specific and uh, a narrow interpretation according to international law, whereby defense, uh, intent is defined based on the specific targeting of victims based on their identity, right? So in this case, the specific intent would have to be that, you know, the Russians are specifically targeting Ukrainians on the basis of their identity, right? Not as collateral damage, you know, or anything like that. There has to be a, like, a specific targeting. So, you know, this is a very strict and narrow definition, right? And one, furthermore, that is kind of based on the assumption that you know, genocide is the ultimate hate crime, right? I mean, that's a pretty common assumption. You know, and, and genocide is driven by hatred, irrational hatred, right? And it's not driven by, you know, rational pursuit of, you know, material power or resources. No, it, it's, it's something that's irrational and driven by hatred. That's the common assumption. And this reflects an even broader understanding of what genocide is based on what we can say, like, is the Holocaust prototype, right? So the more a situation looks like the Holocaust or what we imagine the Holocaust to have been, the more it looks like the Holocaust, the more the concept applies, right? That's that's a general understanding. So you can see there, there's a lot of different meanings to the concept of genocide. It's an essentially contested concept, um, and there is no one quote-unquote true meaning. You know, it really, I guess, depends on who you're talking to. Yeah, and then again, there is that definition that kind of works in the vernacular, and we saw that with some of the statements regarding Ukraine that came out of the United Kingdom, where I believe Boris Johnson himself said, well, it sure looks like genocide. You know, there's that kind of gut-level sense of this is so wrong. I want to drill down a bit on um, one of the terms you used, collateral damage. So there are, and it seems counterintuitive, but there are rules of war. Right. There are rules that govern how combatants and civilians should be treated. Talk a little bit about how genocide fits in with that. Yeah, you know, and that is just strictly speaking, according to the logic of international law, right? I mean, international law, has very precise concepts, you know, and, and things are generally kind of, you know, black and white, right? So, yeah, I mean, the and this does reflect, again, that common understanding of what genocide is supposed to be, like, you know, the crime of crimes, the ultimate crime, you know, it has this high threshold. So, you know, instances that perhaps don't meet the threshold, that fall just short, you know, they tend to, at least in popular imagination, but also in practice, as far as international law is concerned, the situations that don't meet the threshold that fall into these other categories that kind of, you know, have all the leftovers. So, yeah, crimes against humanity. A lot of what is included in, in, under the concept of crimes against humanity is also included in genocide. There's a lot of conceptual overlap, but it doesn't have that strict, narrow interpretation of, you know, specific intent, right? And crimes against humanity can be defined as widespread and systematic attacks against the civilian population, Right. And, and a lot of the specific acts like murder, rape and sexualized violence, these are also acts of genocide. Right. Would also hunger, you know, enforced hunger and famine be an act of genocide? Uh, you know, absolutely. So, you know, I guess one could read into the Genocide Convention. Right. There's, um, I guess, causing serious bodily or mental harm, for example, you know, is, is a form of slow death. Right. Of, of attacking, you know, humanitarian corridors, for example. Is what we see Russian forces doing, right? 
yeah, hunger is absolutely used as a weapon. And we can talk about the historical precedent, you know, that's, that's very appropriate in this case as well. So, you know, I think there's an, an ongoing debate amongst scholars, jurists, observers, and of course, you're tapping into this right now, of whether or not the concept applies in the case of Ukraine. Is this genocide that we're witnessing in Ukraine with Russia's invasion? I would say, given my sort of broader, you know, Lemkinian understanding of what genocide is, you know, for me, the answer is clear. Like, yes, you know, um, I understand the the countervailing argument, you know, that it's not yet apparent. And it's very difficult to prove, in fact, the presence of specific intent. In fact, it's so difficult to prove that it only becomes or often only becomes apparent retrospectively, at which point, you know, we're past the point of prevention, right? It only becomes apparent after the genocide's begun. Um, it kind of defeats the purpose. But that is, that's sort of the logical conclusion of, you know, strictly, you know, legalistic interpretation, right? It, and it, this is, in fact, one of the, the major problems with the genocide concept, you know, because it does have such gravitas as the ultimate crime or the crime of crimes. It has such an immense threshold, you know, for what qualifies that it actually is kind of self-defeating from the perspective of prevention, you know, because to prevent, you have to stop it before it happens, right? But we, this always happens, you know, like there's a genocide, it always, the debate inevitably becomes, well, is it genocide? Like that's the default question. And it ends up sucking all the oxygen out of the air. I mean, it, 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 it's one of the frustrations with the genocide concept, frankly. Well, I want to I want to circle back to, you know, the word prevention, because genocide doesn't happen overnight. And we saw that in the Shoah and the Holocaust. Sure. We saw that in Armenia. And, you know, it. tell me about some of the precursors that we can at least, regardless of how problematic the term of genocide is, we can at least say, well, we know that's probably going to lead to it. Tell me about some of the precursors. And if you can, in the case of Ukraine, identify some of the, the warning flags that we missed, you know, here. Sure. Right. I mean, and, and this has become a very robust area of scholarship and practice is in terms of risk factors. What are the risk factors for genocide? Um, and risk factors are conditions that increase the likelihood for genocide, right? They increase the probability. It doesn't say that it inevitably follows, uh, but these are common factors. So, for example, one of the most robust predictors of genocide is a, a prior history, Right? And this kind of makes a lot of sense. I mean, we see this like in other areas as well. Like if you have a prior history of, you know, smoking or, or bad eating habits, right? Um, or if there's, for example, a prior history like in juvenile offenders, right? is always an indicator for recidivism, essentially, right? So, yeah, I mean, countries that have experienced genocide in the past are very likely to experience it again, especially in a climate of impunity, you know, where there's been no justice for prior, for, you know, for, for previous genocides. So, yeah, I mean, in the case of Ukraine, there have, in fact, been multiple genocides. Talk a little bit about those. Tell me about those. Sure. Yeah. You know, not just in terms of the Holocaust, of course. I mean, that, you know, the Holocaust took place on Ukrainian soil, but especially the Holodomor. Right. And this refers to the Great Famine in 1932-33 that was caused by a Soviet policy of collectivization that resulted in the, in the deaths of, a, of at least three million possibly four or five, four or five million deaths across the entire Soviet Union, but especially in Ukraine. Ukraine was especially hard hit. Um, and this was due in no small part by Stalin's intention to suppress Ukrainian nationalism. You know, and, and in that sense, you know, it was 
it was genocide. I think most scholars agree. And the specific way he did this was Stalin basically took the land away from those who were farming it. Is that not correct? Took the land, especially they took produce, right? I mean, like that was going literally farm to farm and stealing food, you know, everything that they could find um, and, you know, putting it into the, the big pot you know, of collectivization, essentially. But and it was very much tied to broader land policies uh, that the Soviet Union had been tinkering with, you know, over the 20s and 30s. And yeah, I mean, this was a genocide through starvation. Uh, you know, it, absolutely. In a sense, it didn't look exactly like what would become the Holocaust, right? There were no death squads, necessarily, although there was, um, you know, the secret police absolutely detaining and, and murdering people, you know, but there weren't gas chambers. It doesn't look like the Holocaust, Right. But it, it, it very much was an intentional policy of group destruction. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, this was this was very much genocide. Do you think that one of the reasons that we are slow to pick up on it being genocide is because in the moment, unfortunately, it's 10 people there, 30 people there, 50 people there. But we don't seem to add the numbers up fast enough. And as you said, if it doesn't look like millions being herded into cattle cars and gassed, then we don't see it as genocide. Is that is it the fact that we don't recognize the process part of the problem? That is a, that is a part of the problem. We don't recognize the process. Um, and I'll come back to the you know some of the other risk factors as well. Like we're less inclined to see risk because these risk factors the other one I'll talk about in a little bit, uh, identity-based social divisions. I mean, we see such risk factors all over the world, even in our own country, right? Um, but we do have this expectation, dead bodies, a lot of dead bodies, right? Like mass graves, right? And we are beginning to see, you know, those, those visual cues that like tap into that intuitive notion of what genocide means, right? Going back to the Holocaust prototype. And we are beginning to see a little bit of that. But yeah, it's hard, right? This this sort of, you know, th this idea of genocide, of what genocide is supposed to look like, you know, but this is why having a risk factor approach, kind of looking at the risk factors of genocide is, is frankly, it's kind of more important, right? Rather than waiting for the outcome of genocide to be able to retrospectively apply the label, right? Like, oh, well, this is clear that was a case of genocide. Like, no, we should actually be looking further upstream, right? And and really focusing on, on risk factors. I wish the conversation had been the public conversation, you know, had been geared around that instead of what it's become, you know, whether or not it's genocide. I think regardless of whatever one, what, what anyone thinks of whether or not the, the concept applies, I think there's probably greater agreement that at the very least the risk factors for genocide are very present. That should be, you know, the, the, the point of departure. Talk about the identity-based social divisions, because a lot of people, including Archbishop Boris Gudziak and other leaders within the international Ukrainian community, have said the rhetoric that has been coming out of Russia for years has been genocidal and divisive and demeaning of Ukrainians. Talk a little bit about how rhetoric and those divisions set the conditions for the atrocities we're now seeing. Sure. I mean, and actually, I think we can parse out there's a couple of distinct yet obviously interrelated risk factors here, right? And, and dehumanization especially in this era of social media. I mean, it's kind of become its own sort of, you know, this is a, a, a 21st century distinct type of, uh, of risk factor, you know, given the, the influence of social media. Although, it's, you know, it's still the same and there's always been propaganda and, and, and incitement. Um, propaganda and dehumanization is, of course, a major risk factor, you know. And, and in fact, one of the risk factors that's a bit more proximal, you know, like a bit more closer to the actual genocide itself, right? When we start seeing... A type of dehumanization, um, you know, especially through official organs like you know state-run newspapers and the like, 
that's an indicator like genocide is perhaps incipient. Identity-based social divisions is yet another important risk factor. And in the case of Ukraine, I mean, of course, it is perhaps easy to overstate the linguistic divide between the Ukrainian-speaking West and the Russian-speaking East. Although it is true, of course, that eastern Ukraine, um, which is the country's industrial heartland, has you know, a lot of, of close historical, geographical, economic, even personal ties to Russia. Um, and in fact, this is actually it's worth noting that the Holodomor, the Great Famine in the 30s, wiped out the Ukrainian peasant population in eastern Ukraine, where they were actually replaced by more Russified Soviet workers. So, you know, this contemporary risk factor in terms of identity-based social divisions is in fact a reflection of another risk factor of conflict history, right? And that, you know, this this prior case of genocide, in fact, lay the demographic groundwork for the contemporary conflict. Historians have also pointed out that after the fall of communism, and the Soviet Union, there was never a reckoning. No. And there was never a reckoning with the atrocities. And in fact, the one group that was active for so long in Russia, Memorial, that tried to identify and publicize those sites was essentially shut down under new Russian laws that target any speech that criticizes the state. Talk a little bit about how failure to have those reckonings perpetuates the vicious cycle. You know, I mean, impunity has been... Historically speaking, the the rule of thumb, um, you know, more so than justice, um, and in, and indeed in this present case, you know, I have unfortunately very tragically, I don't have much hope for justice, and it and it looks to, it looks like impunity will once again reign supreme. I think this is this has been the dominant trend in modern history. Why is that? I mean, I think there will there will be movement, of course. You know, there will be some small successes, right? And we see some movement. Um, towards justice, you know, across several different venues. So there's, um, right after the invasion, Ukraine initiated proceedings at the International Court of Justice, ordered military offensive. Um, you know, but of course, you know, the, the court's decision is one thing, but who's going to enforce it, right? And, and that same question applies to the International Criminal Court, which has also opened an investigation. You know, but like, let's say the ICC, let's say they charge Putin. I mean, is it realistic to expect that Putin is going to be delivered to the court and, and sit and stand trial and, and potentially be convicted. I mean, I, I think realistically, unfortunately, like the political reality, there's just a lack of enforcement. You know, and even the Ukraine, I mean, Ukraine still has a functioning state. They still have a functioning judiciary system. And they are currently, in fact, you know, they have uh, assistance from the U.S. and neighboring countries uh, opening investigations and their own criminal proceedings. You know, but again, it's a matter of enforcement. I mean, anything short of, you know, Ukraine basically marching to Moscow and arresting him. You know, I think this is, you know, sort of been going back to, the, uh, you know, the, the Peloponnesian War, you know, that the, uh, what, what is the saying? That the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. You know, I think, unfortunately, that's sort of, that's been the dominant rule of the world system, you know, for, well, you know, perhaps centuries, if not millennia. You know, I think, you know, despite the promises of the ICC, I think that the rules of global governance have always been constrained by the limits of political realism. Um, and again, I think this this example here of you know, imagining Putin before the ICC is just, it doesn't seem realistic. Do you think we just, as a global community, tend to say, well, let's just kind of keep this under control? I mean, do you think that's what we tend to do and have done? I mean, because there have been multiple, whether they qualify as, you know, the international 
law definition of genocide. But since the Second World War, since the very you know creation of the term and the concept genocide, we've seen multiple, you know, I'm thinking Rwanda, I'm thinking of all the mass killings in so many countries, Cambodia. I mean, we've just seen slaughter on a scale that at least to the layperson seems historically unprecedented throughout the 20th and into the 21st century. So there is that frustration, as you said. But, you know, do you think that we are collectively as a global community complicit in that, in that we say, well, you know, this is a trade partner and we kind of have to manage this. And we just as long as it doesn't break out of the borders or talk a little bit about how the global community contributes to the effective lack of prosecution for these crimes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very true. You know, we are all implicated. Um, you know, bystander countries are very much implicated. You know, how much mass killings are we willing to countenance in exchange for peace, right? I think there is also a very realistic trade-off between pressures, demands for justice and demands for or pressures for peace, right? But at what at what cost? You know, are we sacrificing the pursuit of justice for the sake of peace? You know, this is we often see this in cases of genocide, you know, the sort of trade off between justice and peace. I mean, maybe in the long run, they're not mutually exclusive, but, you know, for practical purposes on the ground, you know, day to day, you know, reality. Yeah, they're, they're, these are very real trade offs. Um, and, you know, like we, we are as a global village, you know, there, there's a joint responsibility. Um, you know, and we are woefully short. And it goes back to, you know, when I mentioned earlier, the sort of the, the default in our public discourse, you know, to get caught up over the G word, you know, whether or not it applies, it's frustrating with this the sort of pedantic squabbling over over labels. There's a valid frustration why people get so frustrated with the term. And that just puts us, you know, we're further complicit in letting this happen, you know, because we can't even agree on what we're seeing. I want to look at a little bit more about the specifics of genocide in action, so to speak. You know, we know from looking at what Hitler did, that there was propaganda, there were, you know, initial attacks, and then eventually a very, very systematic, you know, extermination of those who were Jewish and also people from non-Jewish populations that were deemed unacceptable to the Hitler regime. And there were even practice runs, so to speak, including on Soviet prisoners. But in terms of what's happening in Ukraine right now, do you feel, based on what you know, that this is an order from the top, from Putin, that you know, kind of continues what was documented in other places such as Chechnya and Georgia. Is this a stated policy? How systematic are these attacks? And from what level is this directive being issued? Do we know? I'll, I'll preface it by saying, you know, what I'm about to say is entirely speculative, not being a, not, not an intelligence expert. Um, based on what we see, however, based on public pronouncements, I mean, I think Putin has been kind of very open. I mean, he does not, he's very open in saying he does not he does not accept the legitimacy of Ukrainian nationalism. You, the, the idea of a Ukrainian nation is anathema to him. Um, and apparently this is kind of a, an increasingly sort of widespread sort of ideological consensus, at least amongst you know, the, the echelons of Russian leadership, you know, that see this kind of a historical narrative of Ukraine as you know, sort of a frontier outpost of greater Russia, you know, little Russia, basically. You know, and in that sense, like... Well, it's kind of it's not entirely dissimilar from, you know, my own subject matter areas and, and Native American uh, genocides, you know, and in often cases, there's not much of an intention so much as like there's not even a recognition that 
the other actually exists. That's the heart of the matter. As you said, it's when you don't even recognize the humanity of the other, yeah. they could simply be, and I, I hate to use so coarse an analogy, but a fly to be swatted. Absolutely. You know, and it's, and it's, it, it is a bit unique. And actually, again, kind of, there's an analogy here with Native Americans, because I think Putin sees himself, I mean, he, remember, he launched this invasion under the pretense of genocide prevention. He was preventing genocide ostensibly, according to, you know, official stated policy, they were invading to prevent, it was a humanitarian operation to prevent the genocide of ethnic Russians by Ukrainians. And entirely, it was an entirely fictional. Now, this is not to say that he doesn't believe it, that he is lying. This is entire speculation, not an intelligence expert, you know, not an expert on Putin. Uh, but just from my, my background in comparative genocide studies, I mean, it's like Hitler, for example. I mean, Hitler legitimately believed that the Jews were a threat, Right. I mean, we look at that now and we, we can all clearly see like that delusional. Right. I mean, it is hallucinatory. Right. I mean, how could anyone think that realistically? Um, it's not dissimilar with Putin. In fact, we see this a lot in comparative genocide studies where perpetrators in their own sort of constructed worldviews have this, you know, role reversal where they see themselves as victims. Right. And that their actual victims are, you know, the ostensible aggressors, you know, therefore they're acting in self-defense. That's also seen at a very basic level in sexual violence and in abuse of children, that same kind of projection and reversal of aggressor and victim roles in in the mindset of the actual aggressor. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think this is definitely coming from the top. You know, I think there will be future studies and there, there are there are hopefully, I guess, teams on the ground now that Human Rights Watch or whoever that are documenting, you know, on the ground, local level instances of mass violence to understand the sort of the micro level dynamics that are involved with individual level perpetrators. Um, it's hard to say what motivates people at that level. Um, there's a, you know, a very robust body of scholarship, but this will all take time to understand. And, you know, those efforts are, are greatly assisted by ideally parallel judicial efforts, you know, bringing perpetrators to justice, you know, when there's a climate of impunity, you know, I don't see, you know, individual Russian soldiers, I don't see them either, you know, getting uh, held to account. This may unfortunately be one of the cases of genocide where we just will be left not knowing too much about it, you know, because of this climate of impunity has, you know, essentially will, will and this is my fear that it will, it will cover it up and that Ukraine will see more mass violence in the future. Looking at Germany's history, and Germany looked utterly hopeless, to be honest, at the, with the levels of atrocities. Right. Is, there a, is there a path for healing here that you see taking place and a path for, you know, if you will, conversion of Russia and its rehabilitation? Do you see any kind of a path forward here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I will say, like, of course, for, you know, for there to ever be healing, the genocide and mass violence would have to first stop. Um, so we're, we're a ways off from that. Um, and, and as well, given the, the multiple causes that are always involved, you know, there will never be a single panacea. However, you know, I think in terms of generally speaking to address your question about, you know, what is there in terms of healing? You know, I think so often going back to this phenomenon that we were just talking about of projection, you know, this role reversal, you know, it's so often grounded in an experience, either real or imagined, but an experience of trauma. Right. And I think. And then not just in terms of individual trauma. I mean, I'm specifically in terms of group trauma, you know, um, in terms of groups and nations. I think you look at the history of Russia for the last century, you know, since World War One. I. I mean, since, you know, it's an infinite regress. You can go back to the Russian Revolution in 1905 or 
whatever, you know, it's, it's been a, a long history of political turmoil in Russia over the last century, right? Um, World War One, the Russian Revolution, you know, the, the Nazi invasion of, of the Soviet Union, um, especially traumatic. There are so many deep, deep cultural wounds, right? Not just in Russia. I mean, other countries, you know, the United States, we're reckoning with it now, of course, you know, trauma seems to be at the heart of it all. And at least, I mean, this is my impression, you know, perpetrators are rooted in a sense of trauma, right? Of, of a kind of a collective sense of trauma. So, you know, I think healing has to kind of take place at, you know, kind of reckoning with, with historical trauma, right? And, and coming to terms with historical trauma. I think in the case of Russia, we see, a, a, you know, a, a case where, you know, there hasn't really been, as, as you know, there's, the Soviet Union collapsed. There was no historical reckoning with the crimes of the Soviet Union. And in fact, I think Russian nationalism has been driven by this fidelity, almost, if you will, a fidelity to trauma of, you know, the Nazi aggression during World War II. And that's why they're using this language that they're denazifying Ukraine, right? I mean, it's a uh, Russian nationalism is so fixated on its, you know, legacy and during the Great Patriotic War, fighting the aggressors of the Nazi fascists. They're so deeply attached and identify with it. It's become the sort of motivating force for an ideology that, yeah, looks like it's turning into genocide, right? And it's coming out of this again, the sense of of self defense, you know, this hallucinatory sense of self defense. So healing has to come with trauma. It has to come with dealing with with cultural collective trauma. And an honest examination of the historical narrative that, you know, includes the sins of the nation itself. Right. You know, in this case, Russia. And certainly, as you said, the United States is coming to its own reckoning. These painful reckonings are are ultimately required for the health of humanity. Right. All right. I mean, and this goes back again to that risk factor of prior history being one of the most robust indicators of future violence. You know, those cycles of violence and, and this pattern of recidivism is only interrupted. It can only be interrupted through some sort of, you know, intervention, right? You know, and, and, and getting to the root of, of those traumas, right? To, to sort of intercede these seemingly intractable recurring cycles of violence. Right? There has to be some sort of, you have to stop the cycle of violence. Yeah, again, I mean, I think we look at this in terms of risk factors, using a risk factor analysis to look at ourselves, what are some of the risk factors in the United States right now? And as you said, your your expertise in Native American studies shows, you know, what many would argue is genocide um, deliberately perpetrated against the indigenous populations. Talk a little bit about that as we wrap up. I mean, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll fix it on, once again, conflict or a history of a prior history as a major risk factor. It's This is actually one of the areas I do research. That's why I'm fixating on it. The United States has a prior history of mass violence. Call it what you will. Was it genocide? Was it ethnic cleansing? Was it crimes against humanity? You know, again, I think it's labels are a moot point. I think we all agree that, yes, there was a legacy of mass violence, not just against Native Americans, you know, but also African-Americans, not just during slavery, but during Jim Crow. So, yeah, I mean, having a prior history of violence that's been left in a state of impunity is always a risk for recurring violence, right? Now, I don't see that happening. Like, I don't see death squads, you know, popping up in the United States anytime soon. You know, but if we do kind of take this sort of big picture futuristic approach of looking ahead, you know, what's what's the country going to be like in 100 years, given our current, you know, given the current state of things and our current trajectory? I mean, it's not entirely inconceivable that, you know, in, in the big picture looking ahead, you know, that, hey, we had a civil war once before. The countries that have experienced civil war in the past are more likely to experience it again in the future. 
that includes us, you know? So, of course, I mean, this is entirely speculative, but that's what risk analysis does. It looks to the future, deals in terms of probability. Is there a probability that mass violence, that civil war, perhaps even, you know, like mass atrocities could happen again in the United States or North America in the next, you know, 50, 100 years? Like, uh, yeah, I think realistically, it's, it, there is a probability. And it's debatable whether it's very probable you know, or where there's a low probability. I mean, that's a matter of degrees. But at the very least, we have to consider the possibility, right? And that should sort of animate, you know, contemporary efforts to kind of, yeah, to deal with this, right? We can't just let these risk factors sit and fester. They require constant vigilance, really. Yeah. It sounds as if you constantly have to be in a state of vigilance, just as we have to be in that with ourselves. And in fact, as you know, a Catholic podcast, we would cite scripture where you know we are told to be sober, be alert, for your enemy, the devil, roams around right. like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so we do have to be attentive. We can't be complacent. And that also just bears out, it sounds like, practically speaking, for even people who do not you know, believe in the Catholic or Christian faith, but just as a matter of uh, common sense to be vigilant and be vigilant at individual and group and certainly cultural and national levels of these risks. Absolutely. There's never no risk, right? There's always risk. And risk is, is, is all countries have a risk for genocide. A lot of countries have a very, very low risk of genocide. Some countries have a very, very high risk, but risk is prevalent. The risk is always there. We'll never be free of risk. And that was genocide expert Jeff Benvenuto of Graz College sharing his insights on genocide and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. If you'd like to support relief efforts for Ukraine, you can do so securely through the Ukrainian Catholic Archeparchy of Philadelphia, which has established a dedicated humanitarian fund that's partnering with vetted organizations such as Caritas and several Ukrainian Catholic dioceses and universities. Visit the Archeparchy's website at ukarchyparchy.us. That's ukarcheparchy.us. US. You've been listening to CatholicPhilly.com from the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Thanks so much to our publisher, Archbishop Nelson Perez, our editor, Matt Gambino, to you, our listeners, and of course, to our Lord, without whom none of this would be possible. You can find us online at CatholicPhilly.com, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CatholicPhilly. I'm your host, Gina Christian, and until next time, may God bless and keep you. 